Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Moby. And I'm Leland Steele. Well, Leland, it's August, mid-August, in fact. No guest, because I tried to find a guest, but nobody wants to be on the show anymore. So, what's happening? Well, everybody we talk to is either on strike or on holidays, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, I do find it fascinating. Look, I don't want to be pedantic here, but I see all this like Instagram stuff of like the really rich celebrities and they're like, hey, on the picket lines, hugging people. I'm like, I'm like, excuse me. Yeah, you have like 50 million dollars in the bank. Like there are people beside you on those picket lines that don't know if they'll pay their expensive Los Angeles rent next month. And to me, it's just I don't know about you, it just comes off slightly insensitive. Um, You know, when I see like the rich celebs you know, doing the peace fingers in front of a camera or hugging each other and smiling. It's like, strike is not a good thing. Strike is not a work vacation. Right. Yeah. I I mean, I think it's double-edged, obviously, because, like, the support is is good, right? Like, it's needed for the writers. And, I mean, we could do, like, three shows on the strike and the reasons they're striking and et cetera, et cetera. Like I, I, I think yesterday I was watching, um, it was like a YouTube interview with Adam Conover, who was one of the, um, one of the negotiators before everything broke down and stuff. Um, so he was very, you know, an an intricate part of it. And he was just saying, like, obviously he has a lot of things to say, but one of the few things that really stood out as far as the compensation and which is, you know, kind of around the main issue of compensation and the residuals for streaming he had a you know a um a show on a very small network that his residuals amounted to like $20,000. He had a show on Netflix where the residuals came out to be 500. Right? So I don't know. There's just so there's obviously there's a whole whack load of shit layered on to what the strike is about and the re- and the various reasons and all. I mean, really it it it, it kind of is like a a systemic problem with the industry, right? As things have just gotten seemingly just totally out of control is the way the way writers are treated and the way that they're compensated when it comes to to streaming and like they're trying to basically cut out a lot of the involvement that a a writer or a team of writers would have on a show um like abolishing a writer's room like so many things it just and obviously that's from the one side is really all that is being spoken about right so you're 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 getting all of the stories and how the ins and out works of it from the side that is striking. So, you know, maybe with a, take things with a grain of salt as well. But and obviously, it's like the union's job to like put the spin on it in their favor too, and to protect. I mean, it's all to protect their workers, etc. But I don't know. It seems it seems the like the issues are like nigh unsolvable and go so deep down into the way streaming platforms themselves are run and operate and the way that they are, that the platforms earn monetize, right. The, their monetization plans. I don't know, man. It's, <laughs> it's messy. It's messy. Yeah. It's, it's rough. I find it kind of funny. Like for years we were warned that AI was going to take all of our jobs and I'm like, yeah, that's chicken little, whatever. But like if a AI was going to take jobs, the first jobs I would think are like, you know, robots in manufacturing or, you know, some sort of like menial task, but who knew it would be actors who are like the first <laughs> group to be most concerned about being replaced by AI. I find that a little fascinating. 
it is uh it is interesting right i mean i also think that also plays into the the systemic thing where cgi plays an entirely different role in the production of films now than yes. than it did before like when you think of like movies like from the 90s where where the the technology was being showcased as how advanced it can be with like T2 and Jurassic yep. Park etc you know those those examples now it's 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 used to cut costs and to fill in where for the cheapest for the cheapest dollar right yeah that's actually very that's a very um astute point on your end i as you said that i'm like yeah that's that's totally true and when you think about it like you know during T2 it's like you know, okay, yeah, the Metal Terminator is amazing and stuff like that. But, you know, it's not like the Metal Terminator. I guess he did have a human actor, you know, Robert Patrick. But you get what I'm saying. Like, it's not like, um, you know, the CGI fighter jets in Independence Day have to go home because they have a wife and two kids to feed, right? It's like nobody cared when it was just like making objects or even dinosaurs. Because who cares? The problem is they're replacing actors now. The technology has gotten almost to the point where it's starting starting to threaten, you know, just making fully CGI characters all the time. And I think that's where a lot of the the concern comes from. I'm kind of smirking, though, because like Hollywood's attempts at making lifelike people still mostly fail. In the vast majority of cases. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I guess I guess they're being proactive there. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I am going to really effort for next month. I guess I'm saying this publicly now to find a guest to comment on it. And I, I do have some other avenues, but uh, I'd really like to get I'd love to get like an actor who's just ground floor, you know, living with a roommate to try to tell me you know exactly what this is like and what their experience is so we'll see what i can do cool because like the the like sag like that's it's north america right right i think it even stretches to britain to be honest i mean i know that there's i mean there's a number or there is a uk union that is separate i know because uh there is some production on the next season of house of dragon that is still moving forward with the actors part that are part of that union because that union is oh. not on strike there's a, so there's like a mess going on with that right now. So I, I don't really know um, exactly where it's all differentiated, but yeah, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. <laughs> uh, and obviously this is going to tie into our movie, movie, movie musing segment, but yeah. it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, just to, to experience kind of this gap in production, right. That is yeah. inevitable, inevitably going to, going to happen somewhere. Yeah. 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 I completely agree. I did see an interesting comment yesterday. It was like one of the higher ups. It might have been the president of Cineplex. And he said, well, you know, if this goes beyond December, that's going to be where the real problem is. So that actually made me think they have new new movies in the can for like the next, you know, four months. And that's a little bit longer than I expected. I would have only expected until maybe like mid-September, end of September. Yeah, because like what what I don't I don't I know nothing about the the like turnaround time bef- bef- between a a project being completed and it hitting the theaters. Like I I have no idea about that. I mean, it can be a long time. I I know the pandemic is probably not the best example of what you know normal Hollywood life is, but there were a number of movies that were 
mostly completed or completed except for post-production during the pandemic that they just delayed years. Right. Right. And so then you're like, okay, well, this is a cool new movie, but it's actually like three years old at this point. So I wonder if some companies, you know, have that in the can. Part of me, you know, the, the guy that's like sales and marketing. Okay. You've got Batgirl fully complete in the can and you said you would never release it, but like, would not a very good window come up to drop a fully completed Batgirl? Yeah. Like everything is done. hundred percent complete. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's the problem with all of like the, the tax write-off implications for canning a project like that. Like, (laughs) do they even have that opportunity now? Right. Like is is that ship sailed on that? Like, that's a good point. I wonder, I mean, you'd have to think they'd have to like pay all the taxes if they. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) otherwise they're going to literally publicly commit for tax fraud, you know, like WB (laughs) discovery is going to be like, ah, we'll take the hit. Maybe we can make a few hundred million on this in this desolate expanse of no new movies and TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it reminds me uh, of, of like, imagine if like your old car, which uh, I guess non-listener Mike uh, busted the door like a week after you got it when we were pulling into that garage. And like, yeah. you know, just head for some reason your car got more damaged and thought it was a write-off, but then, you know, suddenly you're driving it around everywhere. I don't know. No, that's like, that's like making him pay for the damages. And then I just never get it fixed. Exactly. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Which I haven't got to fix. I still have the dent on the side of the, on that door. Did you ever get the damages? Cause we're almost like completing this thing right here. Or <laughs> 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 well, no wonder you retired. <laughs> kill the car enjoy yeah, I, mean, I had you know i had back and neck injuries from all yeah yeah by the way i found your miss missing catalytic converter it's right behind you as we're filming <laughs> <laughs> you've got all this stuff from chopped off from your car you can start to reassemble a car in your recording room you've just got this <laughs> dodge being built behind you <laughs> I mean, wasn't it uh, wasn't it only just a few years ago where the the those converters were being thieved and stolen from all types of cars? Oh, yeah, for sure. Those things are like filled with like platinum and gold and all sorts of stuff. It's like it's like a freaking treasure chest underneath everybody's car. So it seems. Yeah, I mean, hey, let's uh, you know, we want to keep this episode uh, pretty tight, (laughs) unlike maybe the last one. So we <laughs> went a little long in certain segment, but uh, <laughs> that's good to banter because uh, I got a, I got a few quick ones, but uh, let's start with you. Uh, well, really, my only one is is Baldur's Gate 3. I mean, I don't know what else it what else it could could have been. Finally, full access released on the 3rd of, of August uh, this year and. It's man, it was like it was worth the way I feel like it would have been. I mean, I didn't play it in 2020 or 2021, whenever the hell it came out in um, alpha or beta. Sorry, I didn't play the first act. I mean, only a portion of it was dropped for full price, of course, back then. I know Ghost Marty had, I think, picked it up back then and and played through. I don't know how much of act one, Uh, but boy, like Emma and I are both pretty addicted to this game. She has put in. Far more hours than I have. Um, but it's really fun. It's just incredibly polished. I haven't experienced any hiccups with it running or any bugs that 
that are, are either game breaking or at all, quite frankly. I think Emma might maybe have found one like floating NPC and like <laughs> that's it. Like it, this thing is so smooth and it's exactly what I think everybody wanted it to be and somehow still over delivering to, which is funny because now there's a number of like developers and, and people complaining about it being an overachiever for the industry and setting this bar too high. Now. I was just going to bring that up. I shit you not. I read an article on that today and I was going to bring it up on the podcast because I'm reading this article and it's acting like it's this big negative, like something wrong's happening. I'm wait, wait a second. So a very good AAA game is going to put pressure on developers to make their AAA games much better. I'm like, where is the negative here? Asinine. Absolutely yeah. asinine. It makes no fucking makes sense. Makes no sense. Like the industry, talk about a broken industry. We're talking about the freaking film right. and TV industry. Video game is, has been a broken industry for Absolutely. fucking decades. Ridiculous, man. Absolutely ridiculous. Set the bar, man. Larian Studios, like, knocked it out of the park with this. No, no in-game transactions. The game is complete as the story is complete. Just with the nature, so with the nature of the IP, it's Dungeons and Dragons IP, right? Like their dream IP to be able to, they have so much, I mean, they have so much lore and shit they can draw on, but the base game has a lot of different races and classes, combinations you can make. But with the nature of a, a, a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons, there's always going to be more content that they can make expansions for. Like I'm sure they're going to have like class and race expansions. Like the, why, how, how, why wouldn't they, how, why wouldn't they like, that's a, a perfect opportunity. And the game's been out as of us recording this game, the game's been out for one week and there's already, there's already mods for basically the rest of like the cleric classes you could get, you could play on the tabletop RPG of Dungeons and Dragons. Like it's insane. Wow. This might be a tangent, but actually when I saw that and I saw like the number of mods there are, are already out for it. Like it just made me angry, actually. It made you angry. It made me angry that those mods exist because Larian Studios, honestly, like this game is worth paying the full price for it. The ridiculous full price that video games go for now. This game is 100% worth it. And it's 100% worth giving this studio the, you know, any money that they would have for expansions that would include races and class options that these mods are have already created and put out there for people i don't know man i mean right now larian studios is, is riding high and i think they're they're like golden in a lot of people's opinion and it's only it's only on them to fail right now right okay. like they're they're i mean i guess that's the, that is the negative of this kind of overachievement of this game now forever they're going to be put up to their own standard which isn't isn't necessarily the bad thing right but like they're it's it's almost as if they're just destined to to fail like their reputation can only go down you know <laughs> like that's that's the unfortunate thing about it like i i don't know i just the product is just so good and they they clearly took their time with it and took the appropriate amount of time to create it right which we again we've we've spoken numerous times we rarely get to actually see an experience from large i mean smaller smallest to smallest to the biggest studios happens seemingly pretty rarely these days and the standouts is because of how rare that shit is you know yeah and even when you talk about it it's kind of pathetic for towards the industry as a whole because you're like the game was released complete 
the game doesn't have <laughs> bugs. The okay. game has a full story. And we're like, going, what? Mel's open? The game has a full story? But that's where the AAA video game industry is right now. Like, you're right about it being broken. And you're right about it being broken a long time ago. And look, we'll sound like a broken record here. But the one broken record thing I will say is I hate, I hate the excuses the developers give. They're like canned excuses. They're practically pre-planned, like, you know, artillery in a war zone that's already zoned in to fire the moment an order is given. Oh, we're sorry to the fans that it has like a million obvious bugs. Oh, yeah, we're sorry the game's half as long as we said, missing all these features. Oh, we'll do better, but keep buying it at full price. And it's ridiculous. Like, do they take us for fools? I, I think they do sometimes. Oh, yeah, I agree. The people that are giving those excuses are supposed to be the industry professionals. They know exactly where the failings are in the product that they're putting out. Exactly. Every Everybody on the team has to know where the failings are. Exactly. <laughs> We're, the, the consumer are, are not the geniuses that are suddenly realizing yeah. what... The, the the industry professionals have done incorrectly and we're not the ones that are supposed to point out the mistakes and where the thing where the projects have gone wrong that's not the consumer's responsibility to tell the professionals how to make their product yeah someone said something could have been you could have been ghost marty someone else it was like a month or two ago when we were first discussing this triple a shit and someone said like basically fans have become beta testers now for what is ostensibly a full release like here you go now you're you're right i mean they know most of these problems but in effect they're basically waiting for fans to go oh this is wrong this is broken this is needs fixing and then they do it which they probably knew these problems were there anyways spend like six months to a year fixing this ship by that time you want to move on to new games and new stuff it's it's just it feels like a bloody broken cycle of stuff like, do you have any <laughs> hope for most franchises that their AAA title is going to be released polished, fresh, and good to go? I don't, for most for most companies. I think a lot of, uh, or at least I've seen a few people comparing uh, Baldur's Gate 3 to Diablo 4, which recently came out, I think last month or the, a month and a half ago. And just the... Kind of the difference in like the model of both games. I believe they're they're a fairly similar game, right? You kind of make up a party of of fantasy ish of adventurers, um, etc., and, and going out on on this story. And I heard that apparently in Diablo Four, what the the way the UI was implemented. So Diablo Four had like in game purchases and a battle pass system. Apparently, the button to purchase the battle pass system was situated basically right next to or close to the the button that you would click to bring up your map. Okay. And it was create it was made as a basically a one click purchase. So oh, countless no. people mistakenly clicked on the button to purchase the battle pass instead of pulling up the map. <laughs> oh, that is like, like how so fucking dirty. dirty is that? How that dirty is, is filthy. That? that is absolutely <laughs> filthy. That is redonkulous. Well, you know what? Good for it. I'm sure I'm going to play it. Multiple friends have told me to play it, and I like that kind of stuff. I, I'm getting, I think, even more into kind of traditional overhead RPGs. So, I mean, I'm going to debate buying it at full price. I almost want to buy it just for the podcast, though. Like, ram through it as soon as I'm 
done the game I'm about to talk about, which is absolutely no surprise to you. (laughs) But, you know, yeah, it would be nice to have something after I could just spend a lot of time on. I'll consider it, but I'm leaning towards it because I think it would help the podcast. Well, I mean, I might as well just, you know, jump into what I alluded to. So there's a game that I bought three weeks ago and have put in over 100 hours in since. (laughs) <laughs> uh, which is the indie darling uh if you have not heard of it uh dave the diver uh made by the nexon corporation which is a large korean corporation i think uh it's like mind snake or mind worm there's some smaller company they kind of outsource some of the development to very different than stardew valley but it scratches that itch and it's it's such a fun game because you basically have you're, you're Dave the Diver. You're you're this like very nice guy who can't really say no, and he's kind of surrounded by narcissistic people. So it starts, you know, he's on a beach, and his friend Cobra, who's like you know a very in shape, flashy kind of like mid fifties guy, says, you know, hey, can you help me out for a few days with my friend Sushi Place? Because he's like a master, you know, you're a diver, need to catch a few fish for him. And basically get trapped in this cycle of, you know, there's this big tropical watering hole and Dave dives in, catches fish. And you have two two periods, one a morning, one in the afternoon where you can catch fish. And then you go to the sushi restaurant and you have to set your menu. It's a little bit challenging because, uh, well, I mean, there's a, a work around it, but you pretty much have to pick what dishes you're going to sell that night and how many you're going to pre-prepare. And the thing is like, if you say you prepare seven dishes, well, if they're expensive dishes and customers only buy three out of seven, like shit, you took a loss. But if you have a night and halfway through the night, you've sold all out of those seven dishes. You're like, well, why the hell didn't I make seven more? So it's kind of, it's kind of fun in that way. And for the sushi section, Basically, you hire cooks, you hire servers, and they run dishes and stuff, but you have to plug the gaps. So like if there's like dirty tables, you have to wipe them off if your servers aren't getting to it quickly. If, um, you know, the wasabi, because your sushi chef won't release wasabi from the kitchen or won't release sushi from the kitchen unless it has wasabi to go in it with it. So he'll just like stop making sushi and you'll have to go to a machine and like, grind the uh the wasabi but what i like is the game integrates tons of mini games and often the mini game might only ever appear once but there's like so many of them and you know some are pretty cool like uh the chefs come to challenge banch boncho that's the really like cool strong silent type salt bay style chef who cooks everything and you have to actually take your mouse and like correctly like chop up the carrots and the and you know roll the rice and there's all these like motion controls that you do with your mouse um you know to make the dishes so yeah it's a lot of fun it's got a good story too about like this underwater kind of atlantis civilization you discover and try to help out so um you know i'm not going to drag this out but my point is just listener if you miss stardew valley if you miss kind of a casual relaxing you know game where you just grow and farm shit because you do get farms. You eventually get three farms in that game. I, I think it's well worth the money. Cool. I mean, you you did gift it to me, so I'm I'm uh, and I have it downloaded and ready to play. I just need to fire it up. 
I didn't know if you had gotten that yet, actually. I just kind of randomly slipped that to you because I felt bad. I told you why. I'm like, I, <laughs> you gift- did, yeah. I gifted it to Ghost Marty because listener, I'm like, oh, Leland's not going to like this game. And so I gift it just to Ghost Marty. And I publicly say on the T-Hud group chat that, uh, you know, um, I-, I gave it to Marty because Leland would not uh, like it. And then sure enough, Leland, you put it on your wish list like <laughs> a, a few days later. And I saw that. I'm like, I am a bad friend. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I mean, I, I, I kind of use the wish list as like just like a bookmark just to remind me of of games. Uh, so I don't forget about them. Although, how can I forget about because you just, all you talk about is fucking Dave the Diver. That days, is true. So. <laughs> I knew bring it up in this podcast. It was just for listener. I'm like, Leland. Hold on, let me talk about it for five minutes and then I'll be done. <laughs> so you said you had no other banter because I have one more that's even Go smaller. Okay, so I did see Oppenheimer last week with Ghost Marty. I did not do Barbenheimer. Uh, wish I did, but I'll try to see Barbie another time. And I just wanted to make a point. And like, look, I like I like virtually all of Christopher Nolan's movies. But like the way his ass is kicked or not kicked, kissed, his ass is kissed by so many people because he has flaws as a director and he has serious flaws. And I've discussed this with a few people outside of the Dark Knight trilogy. Almost all his movies, including Oppenheimer, have a terrible low energy third act. I actually one of my suggestions is a uh, Christopher Nolan movie. Hint, hint, listener for a segment later. But that movie, like all his movies, has a bad third act. And I told Ghost Marty, I'm like, for most of Christopher Nolan's movies, I watched two third of it. And I'm like, that was good. And turn it off. Just skip the end. <laughs> wow. And in, in Oppenheimer, I mean, it's hard to spoil a movie that is about a historical event in person. But basically, I mean, he he builds his nuclear bomb and there's the test. And that seems really well done somehow ex-NHL notorious hockey player Sean Avery is on the phone radioing that the test is to move forward. I was like, scoozy? But anyways, and after that just follows like an hour of very dry courtroom stuff as you basically uh, Oppenheimer's communist ideals and affiliations are being questioned. But, you know, there's only so much of an hour where it's like, did you speak to Mr. Doherty at 2.45 p.m. on the 3rd of August, 1949? And it's like, okay, I know you're growling that date, but that doesn't make it any more interesting. (laughs) Okay, so this is why I don't understand the IMAX Oppenheimer. Like, I don't get it. Like, literally... How much of this film benefited from IMAX? Like, if you had to put a percentage of runtime, like, what would you say? That is a good question. To be quite honest, given all the big shots and grandiose scenes, you're maybe looking 20 minutes out of a three-hour movie that IMAX was beneficial. Okay, I mean, that's kind of what I was assuming. I mean, I've certainly heard people raving about the soundtrack as, as well. Yeah, the soundtrack I had no problem with. The music was good. The dialogue was good. I was really worried. I heard so many people like Chris Stuckman, you know, saying it's so hard to hear Oppenheimer. Maybe it was the theater I was in. Everything was crystal clear. I don't think I missed a word. So I don't know. 
you know, Lee Lynch, you bring up a good point. I almost think like part of my attraction to it was Ghost Marty, you know, telling me that like literally 30 theaters on Earth could play this in the 70 millimeter that he and I saw it in. And I mean, it is noticeable even in the non action scenes like there's so much on camera you can tell it's more than regular film and it's not widescreen it's just there's a lot there and your mind knows it but no it's it's not necessary and i think that's a, a good point you bring up i i would not recommend the movie in imax oh interesting okay i hate imax i just hate imax i you just hate I, like IMAX irrationally IMAX. hate imax like but like, okay, so I saw when they made Top Gun into 3D and I saw it in IMAX, like that's the kind of movie that should be there. Oppenheimer should not be there. But I don't want to go too much on a tangent, even though your point is good. My point is that, you know, I'm, I'm just sick of, of Christopher Nolan being, you know, getting his, his kudos when, sure, he's a good director. I like the, the topics and the stories he did. I like Dunkirk. Dunkirk had flaws as well. Uh, Dunkirk is a trash pile. Yes. Uh, has many flaws. I, I think like you bring up the Batman uh, trilogy and I think very clearly over the course of that entire trilogy, you see his flaws, the the flaws he has in his creations, right? As you say, as a, as a director and really the dark Knight stands out because of Heath Ledger, like, let's be honest. It's not because, I mean, obviously, like, it's it's like nigh impossible to attribute a, you know, a specific percentage of like, well, 56 percent of this movie's success was because of Nolan's direction. And the other 44 was from, you know, Ledger's performance. Right. Like how how the fuck do you quantify that shit? Really? It's very difficult. You know, in general, Leland, he he has poor pacing. Um, sometimes even through his good acts. I mean, if you look at Dark Knight, right, you start with the Joker, the, the robbing scene where they're all wearing masks. And, you know, it's pretty quick cuts. It's like, boom, go, school bus, go, you know, fire this and that. And then suddenly, you know, it's Batman like at a cocktail party being like, uh, the champagne has more bubbles. I got to get that checked out. And it's like stuff like that. It's like, OK, now I'm deflated. Oh, there's the Joker again. And now I'm excited. And. You know, he did that. Bat, what was it? Uh, why am I drawing a blank on the third movie? But with Bane, too, I felt like it was a completely different pace when Bane was on screen to when Bane was off screen. So I remember that as well. And, and Inception, too. I mean, Inception had a great two thirds. And then the final act, I just didn't know what the hell was happening. Interstellar. Really cool once they get to the planet and time slowing down. But then when Matthew McConaughey goes into like the dimensional change and he's like pulling on weird quantum strings to affect things in the real world, it's just weird and it went on too long. So, yeah, again, I just listener, just take take Nolan with a critical eye. That's all. OK, let's move on then to reverse segment. Crazy about cardboard. And, uh, man, we're doing pretty good at uh, tying in the, the first parts of the show with their later segments. Uh, we're talking about Stardew Valley, the board game. Yes. Uh, I know. I, I know we've I'm sure we mentioned it before on the show about how you uh, purchased 
the game. I don't know if you want to <laughs> give a rundown about that. <laughs> I I will. I will. So listener, the story of the Stardew Valley board game is originally the release was quite small and I did not pre-order or buy it right away, but I really wanted it because I love Stardew Valley. And eventually for my birthday, for a present for myself, I decided to buy it used, but like full, complete in box and in really good shape. It was 450 bucks, which is insane Ooh. for a board game. Ow, 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 ow. But, but <laughs> at the time, I thought it was going to be this, you know, amazing collectible, a board game you'd never see anywhere else and not have a chance of like barely seeing it in our group of friends. And then it was not long after I bought it. It was like three or f- six months later was announced. Oh, because of the popularity of this game, we're going to do a new massive print run and the games are like 50 bucks each. I mean, what do you do, right? What do you do? <laughs> well, I know. I mean, I, that's one thing that you like to dabble in is kind of like this prospective buying with with you know you do that with video games and stuff. So I mean, it's not outside of the realm of what you like to do, anyways. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's true. That's true. I would almost classify that as like one of your hobbies. Yeah, yeah. It's it uh, the collection of games for the purpose of reselling them in the future. And hoping the increase in price uh, is definitely a hobby of mine. And it's been so for like over a decade. To be honest, I didn't think of Stardew Valley, the board game, as a financial investment. I did put my hopes up since the art looked so good in that uh, Concerned Ape, Eric Barone, was like so involved in it that it would match the feeling of Stardew Valley. We'll discuss that in a few minutes. <laughs> I don't want to jump into that right now. But uh, yes, on the financial standpoint, uh, Leland, you were correct. So please continue. Uh, okay. So, I mean, you, you, myself, and Emma had a chance to play it. I mean, we, we, have only, we have only played it once. So this is more kind of our initial impressions about it. But you and I have both played extensively the video game. So I obviously... It's inevitable that there that's the comparison between the two is really going to be the bulk of what I think we probably discuss, right? Yeah. And is really going to color our impressions of the the board game, right? Right. Yeah, so a brief over, a brief overview of the way it plays. So it is a, co- a cooperative game. You there you do have a single farm. Um again, much like you would if you played the video game multiplayer, you share a farm with with all the the players, right? In in the video game and basically you have a, a map of, I mean, the places of Stardew Valley. You have a map of the valley, right? Like, and there's, the locations are kind of grouped into a few different spots, basically. There's, there's kind of, you know, in the town, you have the community center, the, the, the bar and um, the seed shop, et cetera, to, to go and move your pawn to and eventually take actions there. And there's a number of things you need to accomplish. So, you so you the story of the video game is you inherit the farm from your your deceased grandfather right yeah you, there's four like letters from grandpa and their tasks that you need to achieve i think in our game we had to reach the 12th level of the mine we had to make a certain number of friends uh, and w- had to have a certain number of money at the end of the game and then in addition to those four objectives you have you have the community center and there are i think it's nine bundles yeah. Or six bundles. I don't know what the number is, but there's a number of what they call them bundles. And you're going to have to collect a, uh, different types of resources or, or do a certain thing 
to to basically unlock each of these bundles. And you have to basic to rebuild the entirety of the community center. You have to do that and Grandpa's letters to win the game. Yeah. You don't know as you're playing the game though, you don't know what the community center objectives are. You had to spend hearts in game, which is one of the many resources you collect to basically flip over the card, the objective card to see what what they are. At the beginning of every round, you kind of flip over a card and a number of different effects uh, um, happen, which we can we, we can talk about them as we reflect on our play. But then you have a little planning phase with, like, with all the player pawns at, at the farm. You can exchange items here. You can basically discuss, all right, you go you go to the mine and try to get some some gems or, or, or ore that we need. I'll go fish. Okay, I'll stay here at the farm and water the plants. And then you kind of put your pawn to the location you're going to go and you can take two actions at the location you're at, or you can take a single action, move along the road, which there's limitations to the movement, and then take your second action at a different location. And then basically you the 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 round is over. You have a chance to do kind of end of end of turn things, which like upgrade your tools, pet your pet your animals if you have any. Yeah, you love to pet. You were a good. Petter. I love you. Got to pet the animals. Got to make sure they're happy. <laughs> and then you you basically play out sixteen turns. Um, the game is broken into seasons. You have four 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 turns per season basically. And then by the end of the sixteenth turn, if you have achieved all of your objectives or earlier, then you you win. Otherwise, you just spend two hours losing. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. That's that's actually really good. Uh, really good overview there, Leland. So, I mean, let's discuss together how our game occurred, like like what actually happened in our game. And I'll start it off to you with kind of a question. I know you're about to tell me and I'll go like, oh, shoot, you know, I should have remembered. But you do you do pick a profession like a specialty. So I specialized in fishing. I enjoy doing that in the real game. Uh, Emma specialized in mining. I forget, Leland, what you specialized in. I was the farmer, so I had the watering can. Okay, what bonus did the watering can give you again? So at the farm, you have a like a five space plant track. And when you buy seeds, the seeds are always a dollar each uh, when you take that action. And you, you know, a seed, the seeds of in the different seasons, you get different, you know, you get season appropriate vegetation, right? And they, they're going to have a value of, of two to five. When you buy a two seed, you put it on the two slot of your farming row. So what my what the watering can allows you is to stack seeds on a specific spot. Because if it normally if it's full, you can't put another two in the two spot because the, there's something there already. So that's what the watering can did. Now an interesting thing that we kind of stumbled into again as we were all kind of learning to play this together in our first play. Your board, you have the profession board, which includes your inventory, which is a large inventory management can is a large part of the game. I mean, that's predominantly what the game is. Inventory management with a bunch of different mini games kind of scattered around. But you you can you could pick the profession because at the end of every season you get to pick a profession upgrade, but you don't have to have the corresponding tool to your profession. And just because I had the watering can doesn't mean that I'm the only one that could water the plants. It just means if you upgrade those tools the person that has the tool will be better at performing that action. Yeah. And listener, like for an example, um, as the fisherman, I already, I started well with a, a fishing rod and the bonus of that fishing rod was you had to roll a few die at a time 
and get certain symbols to catch a fish. Similar to the plant track, there was, I think, a five marker fish track. Um, and so some of the fish are river fish, some are lakes, some are ocean. And so I had to pick where to go and, you know, roll my dice and try to catch fish. And as I upgraded my fishing rod, every new level, I could re-roll another die until the point like I could re-roll three if it took, took you know, to that. And yeah. And so that's just an example. Right. And like, so, so Emma had the pickaxe. I think we upgraded her her the pickaxe like fairly quickly all the way to iridium all the way to iridium yeah yeah all the way to iridium um because she got a few items that basically allowed her to pick like when she got an ore she could pick the type of it so she just picked iridium right but the way the the way the mine works uh which is i think the mine is probably the coolest part of the game for me i really enjoy it even though i didn't really go i think i did went to do the mine action like two times if that but when you're in the mine, you have a little like a, a, a map, a little like square card with a map. And it's like a I think it's just a three by three or, or a three by four grid. And there's different symbols kind of across all over the grid, depending on the map. There could be like a staircase, which allows you to go down a level to the next level down. Uh, monsters, stones, geodes you can find. I think you can get bug meat in there and stuff. So you just take two of the the Stardew dice and you roll them and then you basically find the cross section of the two symbols that you rolled on this little gridded map. And so if you the cross section meets in where the ladder is, you can go down to the next level of the mine. And then you kind of, the levels get a little more dangerous as you go down. They offer you different materials like from, from copper and then you go to iron or you can find and then uh, to gold as you upgrade your weapons um, or your pickaxe and the monster effects potentially get, get worse as you go down. Like if you happen to roll a monster, you might have your turn ended or they might steal items from you or, or whatever. I think it's really cool. I, I really liked it. Yeah. There's sometimes like, I mean, again, one of our objectives was to get to the 12th level of the mine, the very last one, which we did. Um, I think a couple round, we did it in like the beginning of winter. We, we kind of, that's all Emma did. She's just, Mine, mine, Wind mine, Lord. focus, focus. Yep. And she was, yeah, she's like, her pickaxe, when upgraded, at different stages of the upgrades, you can, so you roll and you find where you are on the grid. The upgraded tool allows you to either move one space to the left or right or up and down. And eventually at the iridium level, she can move on the grid in any direction one space as long as she didn't get a monster on the initial roll. So it was pretty easy for her to like just pick what we needed, like, there were no, numerous times we needed bug meat to give to you, Moby, so you That's could fish correct. with them and, and pick up fish, right? All the mini games feel like pretty separate from each other, but I think the mine kind of allows things to tie into everything else. It's almost like the connective tissue of everything because like the watering can needed ore to upgrade. Right, right. Your fishing rod only required coins, but the interaction between the fisher, fisher uh, fishermen and, and the person in the mines needing the the bait and handing the bug meat to each other. Like I think that helped things stay connected and actually made trading items like kind of meaningful. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I also felt that Emma had the most control over the outcome of her turns. And that's probably due to her pickaxes and upgrading quickly especially when I had to catch some of the legendary fish. So listener, the, there's a special uh, set of dice for catching fish. 
and like one is a Junimo, one is a heart, one is a purple thing. I think it's actually a um, so whatever the flower is called. Yeah, it's not a star fruit. It's like one of the special ones that you know it it in the actual game it upgrades like your stamina and health permanently. But there was only one of those purple spots on the die, whereas the other spots were filled with Junimos and hearts. And I felt like it was a real struggle on some of my turns to get that purple die, even re-rolling, uh, which is what was required to catch the legendary fish. Um, sometimes multiple. So it, it was difficult. I mean, it was fun. Like in, I, I did actually do pretty good in my fishing. Uh, especially the first half of the game, like I was just like throwing them in the <laughs> throwing them in the bucket. Uh, but I I do have some criticism of that for later. Yeah, I mean I think you kind of covered the overview there pretty good. Unless you've got more, uh, I I'd say the only main the other main thing you do in the game is when you make friends. That's a very oh yes of course very large part of it, right? So. There's a villager deck, as there are a number of people and in the in the video game, the NPCs that live in the the little town, Stardew Valley, right? And essentially, you go to town and you go to the, I think you go to the tavern to to meet them. You just flip over the top card and you see what who who you've met. And each character has uh, things they really like and things they really hate. And you want to give them a gift. If you give them a gift that they, well, if you give them, if you're able to give them a gift from your inventory, you will get a heart and you kind of put them in your play area and they're now your friend. If you give them something that they love, you get two hearts. And if you give them something that they love and it happens to be their birthday, which is uh, broken down by the season, then you get three hearts from them. Each friend has like, there's like a little gift symbol at the bottom of their card. And on the uh, aforementioned season cards at the beginning of the round, when you flip them over before you have the planning phase. Sometimes there will be the, that gift icon, which will trigger you to, to get a gift. So you basically choose, like you could have any number of friends. If you have three friends, you choose one of them to give you their gift, whatever is noted at their gift symbol. So it's good to have friends because you'll get free shit, right? Yeah. Uh, but also it's, a com it's completely random because you might have only items that they don't want or can't take at all. Like you could... You could basically waste an action trying to make a friend and not come up, come up with nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And we got a lot of friends and they were pretty helpful, uh, yeah. especially at the yeah. end. I did like that. One of our objectives was to have uh, three friends and basically the scaling of the game is anytime the, every objective basically multiplies by the number of players. So we needed to have a total of nine friends or more by the end of the game to complete that objective. Also, that's, I mean, that's like the main way you get hearts and you need the hearts to uncover the, uh, the other objectives in the community center, right? So you got to, you spend three hearts to flip over one of those cards and you flip them left to right. I mean, you, you need hearts coming out of the ass. And <laughs> yeah. honestly, we, we really only did it like we, we did win, but it was on the last turn that we won. Yeah. And man, it felt like the skin of our teeth. I know there was... There was like some final moment where I think Emma got an extra thing that we needed, like a geode or a something like that. But we had thought that I needed to get it. And like I did, but it was it was right down to the wire. That is yeah, I'm not I'm gonna bite my tongue for the moment. Let's start with the positives, Leland. You know, what what did you enjoy about our playthrough? 
I enjoyed that like we each had a thing that we could always do. I don't feel like at any point in the game did anybody's action feel redundant. Very good point. I agree. Uh, I also liked to me that I got Stardew Valley video game feels from it. I did. When you were doing your various things, even making friends, fishing, especially the mines, it did feel Stardew Valley-ish. And it helped that the art was actually very well done, too. Like, it looked like the village. It was really good. Yeah, it was all recognizable being a fan of the video game, right? And um, I, I wonder how somebody's first impression to Stardew Valley in general would be just first being introduced to the board game and then going to the video game to play it. I, I re- I'm very curious about how that transition would would be versus what obviously what we experienced being the other way around. I've seen uh, quite a bit of criticism for the board game of how it compared to the video game. It is it, stressful, not relaxing at all, which honestly I disagree with. I feel like the video game is also very stressful and you, you can play the video game in a relaxing manner, but at the cost of numerous other things that you have to do your to-do list in the video game much like it starts out with in the board game only gets longer in that in the video game you know like i don't feel like stardew valley is meant to be an entirely peaceful experience i don't know if you disagree with that i mean you've played far more hours than i have of the video game yeah i i would actually disagree um that's partially because i mean you are correct in that stardew valley the video game You always have a ton to do, at least until the end game, like through the mid game. There's always that feeling of like, oh, there's so much work to be done. One more day, one more turn. I did play Stardew Valley, the video game, the multiple playthroughs, pretty relaxing. I never tried to min max the money I made. Sure, I upgraded everything and made like artisan crops and stuff like that. I mean, I definitely scaled my money upwards, but it was relaxing. I did not find the board game relaxing at all. <laughs> no, well, it's not. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's not. not. I felt like we had to make, I'm not talking every turn count, but like every move count, right? Because you can take an action, move then another action. Like it just felt like every little die roll you were doing could be critical and was critical to winning the game. It felt rushed. I, I know I'm getting into negatives here, which I am, but um, I mean, hey, let's let's do it because the largest negative, the largest negative of the game is how random it is. It is endlessly random, endlessly, like literally. There are so many fucking pieces to this game. There oh, are so yeah. many different cards, so many different tiles that you turn face down and it's just like limitless. I mean, the villagers deck is also huge. And again, randomness pulling that out randomly uh get effects from the the season cards at the beginning of every round now there's a number of them that you construct like there's not just four in the game for each season there's i think there's at least twice or three times that for each season we played with the recommended first game set so i think we you know obviously that probably is a middle of the road as far as you know mostly good stuff but some pretty bad stuff like there are, there are crow icons that come up and can just eat your crops. We had one card that only had two crows. Yeah. Like, and oh, we lost two crops rough. to it. 
like right after we had just filled the whole plot too, right? Like right, that was bad. That that inev- that amounts to costing you at least part of an action and like two bucks, right? Because it's a dollar per seed. So we lost two gold and an action, say. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't seem like that's very much because every player gets a total of 32 actions throughout the game, right? 16 turns each, two two actions per turn. But you're right, Moby, like they're, the list of things to do is so daunting immediately. Like we had to have 10 gold per player at the end of the game. And when you start out, you have no gold. And you're like, that seems so fucking difficult because we also had to have, um, I think we had to have, no, we didn't have to build any animal structures. But part of our community center was we needed quality animal products. So this, the, the plants and the, the, yeah, your crops and the animal products have two sides to them. The quality side is worth like a gold more. But what that meant for the community center goal for the quality animal products is we had to, we had to build either a barn or a coop. We had to then buy the animals. And then we had to give the animals hearts, AKA petting them at the end of our turn. Again, another way to spend our hearts so they could be flipped and be happy to produce our, our quality goods. Then if you wanted to take the action to harvest your animals, normally you would have to roll the animal dice. And if you roll, say if we had chick, we had chickens and ducks. If we roll the chicken, each of our chickens would produce a quality good if we, if they were happy. So it's like four different steps just to get this one single community center thing. And we had to do that three times because there were three of us. And it almost bit us in the ass with the geode at the end or the ore that we needed for similar the, I think reasons. It was a mineral. Like, yeah, a exactly. mineral. It's like, there were only a few ways to get a mineral. I think I lucked out in that one of my friends produced a mineral when gift was gift came up right. and that was helpful. But I know Emma too was like going for minerals at the very end, but it's like minerals can be a multi-step thing too. Cause it's like, okay, you got to go get an ore somehow. Then you got to go break or no, get a geo. Then you got to break the geo and then you got to hope an ores inside. And it's like, I think I had to, <laughs> do a certain role at the very end and it came up like like or something i remember doing a final role and we cheered but again this goes to your criticism which i agree with randomness like i can't just put effort in to get an or i have to do a set of two or three random events with my precious few actions to hopefully randomly get something which will open and randomly give me something I need to get something else random and hopefully like end up with what I want at the end. Yeah. You know, you're, you're right. Like, okay. So I, so I improved my fishing rod and I was able to re-roll some die and catch some more fish. Well, all the fish coming up were random cards were like trashing fish all the time, including some that I wanted. And, And you're right. It's, it, it felt like I, you know, we didn't have as much agency, as much choice, as much power over the game as a player should have. I didn't feel empowered. I felt just like it was getting good roles. Well, I mean, li- I think it was literally until winter, the last season, that you failed a fishing role, like legitimately. And you also had, I think, in going into fall, you had a fishing upgrade that every time you successfully caught one or more fish, on a fishing action, we got a heart that was yes. in, literally instrumental to us 
winning because we needed the hearts to flip over the rest of the community center goals. And one of the goals needed hearts and money. So we needed, we needed like 15 something hearts or over the course of the game. Cause we had to pet the animals to ensure that we got that one. I think the, when it came to the mineral one, that was one of the very last uh, community center goals that we flipped at the end of the chain. And I'm pretty sure we might've flipped it in fall, but in, in like spring and summer, I was like hoarding the minerals because I'm like, I can't keep these in my inventory. I, we got to sell this shit. Cause one, we needed the gold too. We needed fucking gold. We, did. we, needed, we needed everything. So you, you literally do need everything. And there is, I think there is a building that you can uh, construct that allows you to store anything you want at the farm. So it's not calling up our inventory. Like we could hoard minerals. So maybe, I don't know if, if like we, if we, maybe we played this, say we played this four more times, we would find out that to best ensure your victory, you have to build that structure because you need everything. Like, I don't know. I don't know. That feels like, I think like, like you were saying basically what agency is, there are very few things I think you can do the game. Like nothing's a guarantee, which, which is a good thing. And a co-op game should be difficult, but I think there's just like, there's just like way too much randomness for it. And the difficulty doesn't feel like you're like, it It doesn't feel like you're equipped with the tools to overcome the difficulty because of how random it can be. Yeah. Only randomness can overcome the randomness with this. Exactly. Game. That is so, so accurate. And you know, like, okay, like it was a ton of fun for that playthrough because of what happened and it was the first time and, you know, we beat it at the very end. But I remember after you guys left and I was thinking about the game and I'm like, 85 to 90 percent of this game had to go right just to beat it by the skin of our teeth like <laughs> there there is easily a world where you myself and emma get to mid-fall and we're like we can't do this like there's not enough hearts there's not enough gold like we would have still finished it but we'd probably know we lost with like five or six turns left to go and it felt like that at some times. I remember there was a point with you. It might have been with the gold. We are like, we've lost our gold. We've spent our gold. We have no gold and we have to have so much of it. Like, how are I we going to get it? We needed 30 gold for the grandpa's task. One of the community things needed like another 30 gold on it. Like we needed. And, it, you know, it's funny, though, at the end of it, it didn't even actually matter because we had like an extra like 20 something gold at the end of it yeah i don't know how we did that <laughs> i don't know either because i don't i don't know i mean maybe we could have built more buildings but that would have been sacrificing actions to do that elsewhere which though building more buildings were not progressing our goals so why would we do it right like you you, you feel very pigeonholed into doing specific things but i i completely agree with the like the randomness overcoming the randomness but I think the a, a perfect example about how the mixing the randomness of choosing grandpa's letters and the community center stuff can determine the difficulty of your game without you even understanding. One of our grandpa letter goals was to catch three or catch a legendary fish per player. Or that one might have just been catch at least three legendary fish. There are only four legendary fish in the entire fishing bag. And there's a lot of cardboard chips in that fishing bag because that was me going through that bit. You took at least one fishing action literally every single one of your turns. Every single one of them. Most of the time, two fishing actions. Yep. I don't know how many were left in that bag by the time of the game, but the pile 
after you sell fish, they don't go back in the bag, right? They're just discarded. That fishing pile of, of fish we either discarded or had fallen off of the fishing row was huge. It was. <laughs> like dozens was. of fish. <laughs> so you might not even just see the legendary fish to even be able to achieve that. Yeah, it was difficult. And I mean, I had to pick certain professions. Like I picked one profession that allowed me to discard two fish per turn and like put in two new ones. And that was essential in getting to the legendary fish. Essential. Because had I not had that ability, we would not have gotten to all the legendary fish. There's just too many. It's too small of a probability to get that. And thank you for bringing that up, Leland, because that is my other of my two main criticisms of this game is to have any chance of it, you know, you're pigeonholed into that profession. Like I was, you may have been a little bit more of a roamer, but Emma had to hit the mines every single turn for 75% of that game. And, and, you know, like there was a point, even when I was playing, I'm like, yeah, this is fun, but legitimately all I can do is fish. Cause if I do something else other than fishing, we're probably going to lose the game. And I don't like that. That's not. <laughs> that's true. That, that's not like Stardew Valley. Like we played a little bit of Stardew Valley multiplayer. And the joke is Leland loves his animals. You know, I, I remember a game with my brother and Ghost Marty. You were like getting a coop, getting getting some sheep on your little barn island as quick as you can. I was taking care of them. But nothing about the video game pigeonholed you in that. Because then you could go to the mines for a bunch of, you know, time if you wanted to switch it up. The board game does not allow that. Not if you want to win. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. And I don't know if the rule book offers ways to increase or decrease the difficulty of it. So maybe you can have more of a pleasant experience. I don't know. I guess you could probably just do that yourself by maybe playing with three grandpa letters and lose a room on the community center. Right? You can just do it yourself, I guess. So I don't know if that stuff is in the rule book or, or not. Maybe if you did, you would have a, a more relaxing time. But you you are right because literally you you and it was senseless for anybody else to try to go and fish. And once Emma had the Iridium pickaxe, it was senseless for anybody to try to go to the mines. Like by the end of the game, we needed nine total friends. I think I had uh, five or six. You had four or five. Emma had zero because she literally was in the mines the entire game. It's. It's very much almost like servanthood in that game. It's like you will show up at your job and you will do nothing but that <laughs> job all day or else like we're not we're not going to have success. And yeah, inventory management. I'm still thinking about that because you're right. That was a problem in the game. In a way, it's kind of a positive because early on in the Stardew Valley video game, before you have like your full size backpack, resource management is a big deal with what you're carrying. Inventory management, I should say. So, so that kind of felt similar, but I, I don't know. I don't really have a point. I understand what, where you're going in the line of thinking you're, you're, you're chasing because basically the board game takes all of these different aspects of the video game, uh, represents them physically very well uh, and, in, and in fun kind of mini game-esque ways. But all of those pieces are contextualized very differently in the board game which does make it feel less and less like the video game. So if the goal was to give you a video game Stardew experience in cardboard form, then that goal is not accomplished. They didn't achieve that, that goal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and 
I don't know. You know, I, I will play it again. I'll probably play it with my family, maybe teach them. And I, I'd be interested in their experience. I'd actually be interested in the experience of some people that have not played the Stardew Valley video game. Like, how does this stand alone as a board game itself without, you know, having the connections to the video game that you and I naturally have and could not not have? You know, be yeah, it'd be interesting. Like, you know, my mom or my sister, someone who's never played Stardew and, and you know, how do they feel about it? So in the end, I'm going to be honest, was the board game worth $450? No, <laughs> not based on one playthrough. It wasn't that much entertainment. I think I need like six to eight enjoyable games out of it, which are then usually like enjoyable evenings with friends. So yeah, then that, that would probably be worth it. But I don't think I'm going to get there and... Look, before I bought the board game like a couple of years ago, I had heard the criticisms that it was too rushed, too random, like we're all talking about. And unfortunately, I think those rumors were mostly true. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think clearly we had probably I mean, we had more negative things to say than positive things. Right. But but it's hard to articulate all of the positives and like the fun that we did have. I mean, anybody that has experienced you know, a, a winning on the last turn of, of any co-op, like the, a clutch roll, a clutch move, whatever. Like that was exciting, obviously, right? I mean, we 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 won in spite of it. Yeah, but you know what, Leland? I'm pat, you know, I'll give both of us a pat on our backs for professional, for the lack of a better term, in that you're right. We had a fantastic, very fun two hours for that run through. But you and I still are able to notice the deep flaws of the game despite a very fun run through. We're not blinded by like, yeah, we, you know, did this at the last moment. Like we're self-aware enough to realize, yeah, we did this at the last moment, busting our ass and having most of the die rolls go our way. Like (laughs) that's what happened as well as having to focus solely on our professions for the most part, randomness, Honestly, some cheap cards like you you mentioned the double Raven card and like I get it. Most of the other cards are pretty good. They allow you to sell and give you gifts. But the Raven card essentially is one FU out of the 16 turns you get. I mean, you get the turn, but it damaged us so much. That card when it was played that I felt it essentially robbed us of a turn. Right. Like it's flushed so many crops down the toilet. Yeah, but I mean, also part of that is the random timing of it because we had a few turns where we had nothing in that crop row and we were planning to go refill it with seeds. So had we gotten anything with a crow on it, then it would have it wouldn't have mattered. No, that's a good point. I don't know how punishing some of the, some of the other cards are, but again, if you like randomize what cards you got, that you're just injecting more ran again more randomness into it, and you don't know which way the difficulty can sway on that randomness and. I don't know if, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you like even design for that, right? Because you have to have good and bad cards, right? I mean, when you have negative events to impact and put obstacles in front of the players, like you need that stuff. But how do you balance it when you offer so many options to randomly set up random decks that you randomly flip, (laughs) you know, like... (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you're pointing out a good lesson here for board game designers. Like, you know, randomness is an essential part of most most good games. Some not. 
But I would argue that randomness is at least a small part in most good game experiences. But you can overdo it. And, and this is a textbook case of where I think it was overly done. I would have maybe loved some global things. Like, you know, if you played your last turn on any fishing area, replace two fish in, you know, the, the, the group of fishes. Something like that. You know, if you spent your... If you petted an animal last turn or two animals and harvested, you get an extra heart. Like... Throw us a bone once in a while in this game. Yeah, I mean, I think I think some of that maybe comes from the items, but the item deck is very large. And again, when you're randomly pulling from the top of it, like I think honestly, we only got that specialty animal product uh, community center gold done because I happened to get an item that was like an automatic collector. And when the gift symbol came up on the season card, we got to collect. We automatically collected and produced from all of our animals. Like that's literally the only reason. Like I think I rolled the animal die once. That's a great point. But we still managed to get three or more quality goods to fill the the goal. So I don't know, man. I'm can't we we obviously lucked into successfully completing <laughs> completing our playthrough. <laughs> we did. Oh, we absolutely lucked into it. And therein lies the overall criticism that we brought on this game. So I don't have any more comments on it. Me neither. Um where do you put this in your rank? of board games again the our our list of board game review raggings is on our website at ttpopcast.com slash review dash rankings where where do you put this okay so my debate when i was planning for this podcast it was very easy for me to figure out approximately where stardew valley would go which is uh, my mid-range board games reviewed so far is Ticket to Ride. The game is definitely not better than Transatlantic, but I don't think it's definitely worse than Kemet, uh, which was good. And don't get me wrong, Stardew Valley's still good. Like, it's not at the bottom. But my question was, does it go above or below Ticket to Ride? And the answer is, I do think it goes below. So I put uh, Stardew Valley above Kemet, but below Ticket to Ride, which makes it an average board game, according to my opinion, maybe a 6.5 or 7 out of 10. How about you? I think I put mine below Wingspan and between Planet, which outranks Planet, Kemet, This War Mine, and, and Spartacus. That might be too high. That might be too high. But my initial impression, like, I thought it was fun. I would play it again. I don't think I would play it six more times. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. This is a hard one. This is this is a difficult one. It, it you know, it's it's almost difficult. Maybe you don't agree with me or know what I'm saying. It's almost difficult because the game is too average overall. <laughs> it's incredibly fun, but it's massively flawed. And that to me kind of creates this weird balance of averageness it's like okay hey, well where do i put it because it's like it's not horrible it's not fantastic so is it above average average or below average but whatever it is it's average something no i understand i don't know i'm just looking at my own list and at the bottom of my list is uh, spartacus and i'm trying to think if i would place this or spartacus if i had the choice and i do not know okay well if that's difficult then maybe you did put the game too high up because like if you're going to tell me 
if you're going to tell me I would play this war mine every time over Stardew Valley, then obviously it's, this war mine needs to be above it. <sighs> Fuck, you're right. Okay, Stardew Valley goes at the bottom of my list. <laughs> it's at the bottom. Whoa. It falls to the bottom. You're right. Leland with a curveball, baby. Listener, <laughs> listener, he got, from hero to zero goes Stardew yeah, Valley. Yeah, no, for, from average to average. It goes <laughs> right to the bottom. <laughs> wow. Okay, sorry, Stardew. <laughs> that was Moby's doing. <laughs> Thank you for the guidance, my friend. <laughs> the very razor-thin silver lining here is I know you don't absolutely hate any board game we've reviewed so far. That's so, exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly know, it. At least that, but uh, I get you, man. All right. Well, on that somewhat average note dare i say uh should we move on to our final segment here yeah let's do it okay listener it's time for movie musings uh this segment called sag strike sucks uh which we alluded to now that the, the description for the segment is actually a little different well a little vague on what we're reviewing uh with the sag strike it looks like it's going to carry on for several months uh, that means that, you know, we're not going to have new content uh, created. Eventually, there will be a gap. I alluded to the Cineplex executive saying that gap may start a, as of December 2023. But what I thought might be a fun segment, and I've known we, we've given like unsung gem movies and TV before, but like, what do we feel would be really good to catch catch up during this bubble of time? And not really like a list per se, but just kind of throwing out some old movies or TV uh, that we think maybe didn't get the attention it deserved. I've got some that are pretty recent and are available and, you know, just, just some that we can point out to listener and say, hey, you know, maybe give this a shot if you're bored. So, you know, I guess since I'm I'm kind of leading this segment, I will start with my uh first one which again this isn't a list but it's just the the how i've written them uh the first movie that i think um you should watch if you haven't already seen it is i tanya so i tanya stars margot robbie it's only a few years old uh and it's her playing tanya harding a famous figure skater who had like a crazy boyfriend and uh you know he had a, another friend who thought he had worked for the cia and was like filled with bullshit and whatnot and they kneecapped her main rival nancy kerrigan like actually she was coming off the ice and this guy just like capped her in the knee with like a lead pipe and there's that famous thing where she's yelling like why 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 it's like a really weird sound clip yeah, and why I brought this up is the movie's only a few years old, but like Barbie is is huge right now. And I think this is a Margot, this is the first movie where Margot Robbie herself was like at her peak as like, okay, she can be a leading woman in a movie. She is charming. She, I think she was an executive producer. And like her, she's still absolutely in her prime right now. Like she's absolutely in her top. But I, Tanya was when she first summited Hollywood to the top. So I don't really have anything else to say on this. Like, I don't want to go like 10 minutes per choice, but that's my, that's my justification. My only question to you would be, have you, have you actually seen I, Tanya yet? And if no, do you have any interest or, eh? I have seen it. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Okay, that's good. 
And like, I didn't, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not a, uh, <laughs> an enthusiast of, of, uh, women's figure skating and, uh, <laughs> and I enjoyed it. I, I like ice it. dance. You and me, like, well, don't make me say true. secrets. We have a certain What's... ice dancer that you and me both wish we married. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she, she's a virtuous individual. <laughs> Tessa virtue. Good. Yes. Thank you. Good back. Good back. Um, Okay, so the uh, my I have you know a couple TV shows and a movie myself, but my first TV show is uh, available on Amazon Prime. Upload. Okay, I may have seen a few episodes of that. Is that the one where the guy like dies, but he goes to this like resort that's quasi heaven? Yes. So uh, two seasons have been released. I think the first one came out in 2020. A third season was renewed. I don't know what is going to happen with that now, but. Uh, basically, humans have developed the ability to like upload their consciousness to a virtual afterlife once once they've died. And this guy, he's like a hacker or a programmer. He unexpectedly dies and basically ends up there, um, kind of almost like mistakenly as a result of like his girlfriend slash ex girlfriend's wealthy family. And there's suspicious circumstances around his death and like why he was essentially killed. It's it's like a comedy. It, it's 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 funny. The premise is kind of interesting too, right? Like it has some commentary on like a, a class system as with, with, with like the heaven being this like VIP experience that the wealthy can tap into. And essentially you have enough money, you can become immortal is, is, is what it's kind of saying. Like there's like low data areas of afterlife where, you know, if you got two gigs about two gigs of data for the month, and you run out, basically you just freeze until the next month and you get your, yeah. your renewal of data. <laughs> like it's kind of, it's, it's, it's cool. The first seasons I think is, is better than the second. Cause it's like kind of a novel concept and uh, I don't know, it's enjoyable. All the actors are, are very enjoyable. There's like guardian angels. They call them are essentially like people who are so alive, but they're like at a call center and they help the residents of the afterlife give them whatever they want, etc. So there's like a relationship that forms by the the main uh, the, uh, protagonist and one of the guardian angels, etc. So that's kind of part of this love story and tri- love triangle, and it's kind of drama y but comedy as well. Yeah, you know what was interesting and was kind of my impetus to watch it was I don't know if I ever let you read it, Leland, but like in 2018, I wrote my collection of short stories, my self-published book, Imminent Memories. And one of the five short stories was about a guy who broke into basically like a server farm because the server farm was for a company that did a very similar thing. When people died, they would download their consciousness into this virtual heaven. In part of the... um you know, the, the thing, this guy goes to the virtual heaven because he wants to confront the CEO of this company that is now in the virtual heaven. And he actually goes there to kill him, to delete him because this guy worked his dad into the ground and didn't give him any reward, didn't give him a ticket to digital heaven. So again, the story's a little different, but I was surprised that two years later came out like, a well, I mean, it came out uploaded, you know, it was just... I mean, of course, it's a coincidence, 110%, but it was just so weird seeing a similar show come out. And and that's what made me want to watch it. Good pick, for sure, for something that's kind of not too many people know about or talk about that is definitely worth some time. 
So I like that pick. Second, I have a what I believe is the most underrated Clint Eastwood directed movie, which is Richard Jewell. Uh, Richard Jewell is a true story, well adapted, about a security guard who saved a bunch of lives at the 1996, there was a, a terrorist bombing, like a big bomb packed with nails went off. And he recognized the threat like five minutes before it happened and started ushering most of the people away. Nobody understood how he knew like there was a bomb there and it was about to go off. So a lot of the like FBI's investigation went on him when he was completely innocent. He didn't help himself out. You know, he was in real life and in the movie, he was a pretty large individual, lived at home in his mom's house, but like very grandiose. Like he thought he was destined to be like a protector, you know, a security agent, a cop to save the world. But he's such a, he also, he speaks from the heart, like in real life and in the movie, and he gets himself in trouble like with interviews with reporters and stuff. It's just a really good story about like a kind hearted man. And I remember the 1996 Olympic Atlanta bombings. I remember watching it on TV on like news with my parents, like right as it was happening. So all of that was in my memory. And um, yeah, it was really cool to hear a story. Who? Uh, it's the guy who was not his his first name is Sam. Oh, Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. That's it. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell is amazing in Richard Jewell as like his friend who happens to be a lawyer that he has no money. So he like needs his help. And Sam Rockwell knows he's the best guy. You know, he's a very good, pure hearted guy. But again, he keeps shooting himself in the foot with whatever he says. He like will not shut up that, you know, he's like this protector and I had to protect. So I, I don't know, like, you know, there's that saying nice guys finish last. And this is a story where that almost happened. But of course, you know, eventually they realize he's a hero. But uh, yeah, I, I really like it. I don't think a lot of people have seen it. So Richard Jewell, absolutely recommended. Nice. I haven't even heard of that. So that sounds interesting. I think I would probably enjoy that. I think you would enjoy too. It uh, the main character. I don't know his real name, but it's Stingray from uh, from uh, Cobra Kai, and he was in Itania as well. He's in Itania as well. He's a good actor. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's good in Itania too. Uh, okay, so my second pick is another TV series called Evil. It's available on Paramount Plus. I think I I don't know how I happen to have. I guess part of my Amazon Prime, I have a Paramount Plus subscription now. I don't know how or why I'm paying for that. But anyways, it's first season aired back in like 2019. It uh, has three seasons that are out. They have a four that, fourth that's been greenlit. But again, who knows? This is a series about a forensic psychologist. That she teams up with a Catholic seminarian whose job, like he and, this, uh, and his, he has like a team or something um, that they basically go around and I try to debunk or confirm supposed like miracles or, uh, you know, possessions and re like religious phenomena. It's, it's, cr I've watched first seasons of our, it's, it's kind of creepy. There's definite like horror elements to it. Um, it kind of keeps you guessing and doesn't immediately outright tell you that these things are real. Like it, it as the story progresses, you kind of get doubts and then you get what feels like a confirmation, but then 
there's kind of an explanation for what's going on. It's kind of centered around the woman, the 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 protagonist. Uh, it, it's interesting. It's kind of another one that seems like a very strange concept. Well, how you describe it, now I know nothing about it, nothing, but how you describe it makes it sound like an X-Files monster of the week sort of thing. Investigators, is it real? Is it not real? Creepy. That's exactly how uh, it, it it's described. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, I love the X-Files now that I'm finally watching it. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll watch some tonight. I, I I like that idea. When you tell me it's similar to that, you're intriguing me. Okay, is it is it like Monster of the Week, like where each episode is a new evil they're investigating, or is there an overall story? Um, there is an overall story that is kind of unfolding behind the scenes, um, mainly to do with like the like so the characters, obviously, kind of their past. But yeah, essentially, I think every episode, or maybe every two episodes, is basically like another like phenomena that they're investigating, and it kind of you know the first episode has how the forensic psychologist, she gets basically introduced to this team, the, the seminarian and, and how they kind of come together and why she signs up with them because she's an atheist. And that's kind of also a part of the questioning whether or not like these phenomena are actually happening. And she like immediately like starts to have dreams of like a demon that comes to her, like as if she's like sleep paralysis. So like, it's like, is the demon real or is it just sleep paralysis? And like her, one of her, her younger, one of her young daughters, like talks about seeing the same, a similar described description of the demon. There's another, there's another like uh, opposing forensic psychologist that seemingly is out to undo all of her work in like past cases of like putting people away. And it's like, well, the seminarian basically says that this guy is the devil. <laughs> like he is the incarnation of the devil. So it's like very, I don't know. It's, it's, it seems very unique to me. It's interesting. So you've got a seminarian true believer paired with an atheist who is still tortured by the phenomena. And there's an outside source trying to discredit them. Are you sure evil is not just like a Slovenian word for X-Files that you're rewatching? This <laughs> <laughs> evil is a, uh, it's like, oh, it's just X-Files, but in Slovenian. Oh, exactly, this makes all sorts yeah. of sense. It sounds similar. <laughs> like when you talk about yeah, it, Leland, it, totally it does. sounds similar. It 100% does, yeah. That's great. That That's, in, that, that's an entertaining little chat there. Um, I'm going to mix it. So I've got three movies and one TV show. I'm going to put in my one TV show here. Um, this one is not going to be too, too much of a surprise. But it's it's time limited, which is why I want to mention it now. So it's Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Star Trek Picard season three, which we've talked about before and I loved, got a lot of fanfare. But Strange New Worlds is like the actual new show that's still going on, which is a prequel to the original series. It slowly has been introducing original series characters played by different actors. Most of them have been cast really well. But Strange New Worlds, they're taking a bold approach. Basically, the Star Trek producers are using it as an example to, or using it as a test bed to try like genre pushing, well, shows. So like, for example, there, there's an episode with the Gorn and the Gorn who were like a comical dinosaur bad guy from the original series. Now they're more like Alien from Aliens. And there's an episode that feels like you're watching Alien 1. Cool. And it's shot that way. It's dark. It's gory. It's allegory for Star Trek. 
But then like there's a musical episode. There's a comedy episode. There's an episode where one of the crew members daughters like gets semi adopted by like an alien cloud that turns the whole ship into like her storybook imagination. And everybody's like (laughs) dressed up and like trees are growing in the hallway of the enterprise. You know what it is? It's creative. It's trying. And not all of the episodes are a hit. I didn't like this comedy episode I saw in season one. Boring, forced humor. But you know what? There's another episode around the corner where they try something completely different. And there's some inspired casting. Anson Mount, who plays Commander Christopher Pike. He's my favorite captain, but he is a Gary Sue. He is way too perfect of a man so far so i hope they introduce some vulnerabilities to him because like he doesn't meet in a boardroom with his crew somehow starfleet has given him a giant cabin where like he has like an open fireplace to kick back around it and like sofas he has a huge kitchen he doesn't meet around a board table what he does is cook like delicious fresh food and while he's cooking and chopping he's talking to his crew it's pretty extreme. <laughs> and, and like, you know, he's he's tall. He's fit. He's incredibly handsome for like, you know, a 50-year-old man. And But the rest of the casting is great. There's Christina Chong as Leanne. She's like, a, she's similar. I don't know if you've seen Star Trek Wrath of Khan with like Khan, who was like genetically engineered. She's like part of his sort of group of genetically engineered people. Um, So she's really cool. Which is outlawed, right? Genetic modifications is against the law. It it is, and actually, it's it's interesting because there's another character on that show, uh, played by I I always call her Mystique, uh, Rebecca Romjan. She plays number one, and it was weird. I'm like, wait, number one isn't that Riker? But no, in the pilot episode of the original series, this is actually based on the pilot episode of Star Trek, which did not have James T. Kirk. It had Christopher Pike, played by a different actor. And it had all these different characters, different doctor, different people. So it's almost like a reimagining if that crew had gone forward. So yeah, Rebecca Romjan, she's genetically modified. That's a big part of the story. The characters just, they're, they're really well acted. I have almost no complaints with it. I really don't. I, I just think it's really good. And why I said it's time sensitive is everything Star Trek is being moved to Paramount Plus, but Strange New Worlds is still on Crave. I feel like Crave is more common for people to have subscribed to than Paramount Plus right now. So if you have Crave, binge it. The second season just ended. They just finished season two, episode 10. So you can binge through two seasons and I would recommend that you do so. Cool. I'm I'm definitely interested. Um I I mean I I have Paramount Plus now, so I guess I'll wait till it goes to Paramount Plus because <laughs> apparently I have it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should be getting it uh, soon. I'm pretty sure to leave uh, Crave pretty shortly. They've been moving a lot of things over. Hmm, interesting. Well, that kind of uh, I mean to me, it's like Crave didn't have much value, and it's just getting less and less value. I agree. I agree. So my one movie on my list is one that I know you'll agree with me, but it's uh, on Netflix. It is the platform absolutely uh this is a spanish film uh kind of about like this prison system where the cells are basically just like levels in this this like almost like an underground tower and there's this big hole in the center of each cell and this platform raises down every day with just 
food and, you know, sustenance for the prisoners actually live on. And essentially the premise is if every level only took basically what they needed, everybody would get fed. And it's, again, kind of more of a social commentary. And then every every month that they're, the prisoners are in the cell, they get knocked out and then randomly swapped to different levels. So you might get in like the top 20 levels and have your pick of the food, or you might be at 150 or however, and un, kind of unknown how low it goes. So it's, it's very interesting movie. Very interesting, disturbing in parts, especially some of those lower levels, baby. Who boy, you don't want to be Ooh. in a lower level. They tell you it's like something like below level 27 or something. That's when you got to start getting worried. Because with this thing slowly lowering, I think it gives like five minutes per level. Like some of the prisoners do some pretty fucked up shit to the food. Like, listener, let your imagination run wild. If you could have like an all you can eat buffet for five minutes, it slowly goes down through like 200 levels. And you have some people that are under a lot of mental stress, like you know, they're, they're, I mean, on the low end, on the stuff that I'm comfortable talking about, you know, they're spitting on food, they're throwing bones, they're messing up cakes, you know, with their hands and touching everything just for no reason. And yeah, you're, you're right. That, that's a great pick. That's a great pick because I don't want that movie to be uh, forgotten. Yeah. And it's kind of tough to discuss without really like spoiling the thing. I think the premise is enough to go in and you kind of understand what you're getting. I mean, theoretically they're all like prisoners i guess like they're kind of purported in the movie as being just degenerates right like the lowest of the low absolutely and uh i i mean you're right about like not saying too much because it's one of those movies you don't want to spoil you just kind of want to tempt listener to watch it but i think you should be intrigued listener i mean the only other thing i'd add to that is that the main character meets some pretty interesting people as levels change and so that's beneficial too. Like there's some good supporting actors in it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good pick. My last pick. So I was thinking about this. It's middle of summer. I'm like, okay, how do I suggest a blockbuster movie, but a blockbuster movie that probably nobody would guess. And it still stars cool people and it's accessible and it's intriguing somehow. And I like, I, I thought of so many movies and obviously, I mean, there's probably so many choices I could throw, but uh, I ended up going with the 2010 action thriller unstoppable starring Denzel Washington and Chris Pine, which is loosely based on a freight train that gets loose with no driver. And so basically like this train, it's like, it kind of gives you Snowpiercer vibes. Like it's going around like Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. Uh, and it's like, they, they got to like, you know, police have to like shut down all the crossings and they have to get someone aboard to try to take control of this train. So it's almost like, it's almost like the movie speed with Keanu Reeves, but you know, combined with, you know, with this kind of action movie, unstoppable for Snowpiercer sort of thing going on. And I mean, when I say the two main actors, like I think, I should go without speaking that, I mean, at least T-Hud approves of Denzel Washington and Chris Pine. Like, they're good actors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ethan Supley is in it as well. Ethan Supley, famous for being, like, a pretty big early 2000s actor who was quite large, but got, like, very ripped. Like, he's almost a meme because he's worked out so much. Uh, so, so he's in it. 
as well. Uh, it has Rosario Dawson. You know, she's in vogue again because she's about to play Ahsoka, which comes out in a couple weeks. Yeah, I mean, overall, it's just uh, it's it's a blockbuster summary movie. It's not very violent. So it's like the whole family can watch it. It's action filled. It's not boring. You can kind of turn your brain off because it's not like they're discussing crazy philosophy. I like it. I own it on physical. I come back to it every like year or two. And um, I am certain that for all the times I repeat myself, I have not said watch Unstoppable on the podcast yet. <laughs> I I would agree with that. That is, uh, again, one that kind of, I guess, went by me. Yeah, and, and, you know, that was my thought, is like, I remember being released in theaters, but it, it was one of those, and there's lots of movies like this that are kind of like in and out, and you never hear about them again. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, I bought it on its original DVD release because I liked it a lot, but it disappeared for everyone else. I mean... Really, that was kind of my theme here, like Richard Jewell, too. Same thing. And, you know, I'll hand it to you. Like you had a number of good picks that I thought, yeah, th those are kind of we don't want those to be forgotten. So good picks, Leland. And that's the last one I've got. Oh, well, that was great. That was great good episode. Yeah, I thought both both segments were, were quite good. So lead us to the end of stuff. End of show stuff. End of show. Uh, our website again, ttpopcast.com. Uh, ttpopcast on Instagram. The T-Hud Popcast on Facebook, where Moby maintains our page. I'm Leland underscore Steel on X. No longer Twitter, but <laughs> X now. <laughs> it's so dumb to say that. Uh, but that is who I've been. Yeah, and I have been Moby. Hope you really enjoyed this episode. Uh, just kind of a summary, fun little thing we threw together here. And... Uh, we will talk to you next month. Uh, so with that, I shall say, take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. This has been a Sounds of Steel production.